Wonderful to have each and every one of you here. We actually, um, we put this out through Facebook and Instagram and everything else, that this sermon is PG-13, which is, it's just kind of fun to say that, but this is PG-13, so fair warning, if you're a parent with a small child um, in here that you're like, whoa, I don't know if I want to have these conversations on the way to McDonald's today. Fair warning, okay? We have amazing ministries over there. You could go ahead and jump in on those. Um, otherwise, uh, you're welcome for the conversations you're about to have. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, turn in them to John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. We've got uh, a, a situation here that we're going to actually, we're going to start not on this, we're going to land on that at the very end. So if you've got your, your finger there, you can hold on to that till the end of the sermon. We're actually going to start um, just dealing with the issue at play here. Jesus, there's, this is a woman that's caught in adultery, which obviously brings up, how should I think and process human sexuality? This is a sexual sin, and so it begs the question for how would Jesus call us to live and, and operate within this? That's neat. Um, and so we, the thing that's awesome about this, this is located in John. And John 1.14 talks about how Jesus is, is not partially, he's full of truth and full of grace simultaneously. Both full of truth and full of grace. Not a percentage of one or the other. He's not like, you know, I'm, I'm a, a strong 40% on the truth and 60% on the grace. Jesus is full of, 100% full of both truth and grace. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just trying to emulate him. That's what Christians do. We just say, look, in spite of what I'm feeling, in spite of what I'm going through, I want to I angle myself and position myself to be the type of person that is actually going to be respond to reality, even complicated reality, the way Jesus would with truth and with grace. And so what we're going to do with this is we're going to look at the purpose of our sexuality, the problem with our sexuality, and the pathway forward for our sexuality, and then we're going to circle back and we're going to address that John 8 passage and look and see how Jesus was able to capitalize both on truth and grace in this very, very clear situation. So first off, the purpose of my sexuality. The purpose of our sexuality obviously first off starts with the notion of what sex is. And sex is something that um, is, you're going to find in every single culture a different take on this issue. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising to you, or it shouldn't be surprising to you, to find out that Christianity is going to hold to a perspective that's going to be different than the current culture. Because for 2,000 years, Christianity has had a different perspective than the current culture. And so if it feels at, at, at odds with the current culture, that is nothing new. That is something that we've seen from the very beginning. And so what I'm going to communicate to you, if you're not a Christian, you can understand that this is a perspective that you may not adopt. You may not be all in on this, and you may not be convinced. In fact, there's a passage where the Apostle Paul says that at Christians, people within the church, we shouldn't be the type of people judging those on the outside of the church and their sexual ethic. If someone is not Given them life, given their life over to Jesus, if they've not been redeemed by the Holy Spirit, and they're not like operating the way God would want them to, that makes sense. And so to expect, have an expectation that that people on the outside of the church have adopted the very count, seemingly counterintuitive and countercultural, certainly perspective on anything, let alone sex, would be short-sighted. So the reality is, is that that this is something that within Christianity, people who have looked at Scripture and have taken it seriously, identify. That, that regarding sex, there's a pathway towards that. And we see that uh, modeled in the very, very beginning of Scripture with, with Adam and Eve, our genealogical ancestors. And it's within the confine of marriage that sex actually was a component of a greater mission, and the mission was accomplished by marriage. Now, because of that, Christians, we, we have, we've made this into something that's really, really, really important. And very, very, like, this is like, hey, if you're growing up in the church, man, you look forward to the woman or the man that you're marrying, and it's going to be phenomenal. 
Um, but we've missed perhaps the definition and the purpose of sex that we see as Scripture continues to evolve out the understanding of what this sex ethic is. Paul, again, single guy, has a lot of great stuff to say about sex, however. He says this. He talks about um, that in, when we get to the book of Ephesians, he talks, and, and, and 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about sex as a giving act. Uh, and so maybe a way to define it would be this. Sex is giving your body to the person you've already given your life to. In other words, the, this very narrow-minded perspective that Scripture seems to point out is this. I'm not going to ask from you your body before I've pledged my life to you in marriage. That within marriage, I'm able to have this, this protective circle of, of, of living out and fleshing out my, the, the sexual reality that I have that is intended to be enjoyable, supposed to be pleasurable, supposed to be something that, yet yeah, sometimes it leads to kids, sometimes it doesn't, but it's something that is, is created oneness within that marriage covenant, and it's not expressed until that covenant is established. Now, here's where the church is really messed up. We have thought so highly of this concept, and this is where sex is and marriage is super, super important, that we've actually made everyone else realize, or made everyone who's on the outside of marriage, which is about 50%, feel like you really don't have much of a place in the church. The church is for married people, and even better if you've got kids. That's bonus points. So if you're single, that's really kind of like, yeah, well, you're, not, you're kind of like, you're not quite there, because in order to be fully fulfilled, you really got to be married. I mean, certainly to be fulfilled sexually, you've got to be married. And, and if you save your sex for marriage, it's going to be the most amazing sex out there. That's false, by the way. The truth is, is that this is something that we have put it into people's heads that, that honestly the most fulfilled and, and the end of the story has to. If God is a good God, the end of the story is that I, one day my prince will come, one day my princess will come, and the end of the movie is we get married and we always live happily what? That's how, that is a joke. Why is, why is divorce so high? Because people have believed that and they've actually bought into that concept of, you know what, everything is leading towards that. That is the fulfillment. My deepest, truest identity and worth as a person is found when someone says, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. And that we can have an emotional and relational and sexual relationship and this is going to be awesome. And then they get married and they realize it's super complicated and people are way weirder than we gave them credit for. And then all of a sudden we have divorce. The idea that everything is leading towards this beautiful end of one day my prince will come and, you, at the, and we all live happily ever after has a whole lot more to do with Disney than it does the Bible. And yet Christians have not just bought that from Disney and conditioned that from Disney. We're the ones who gave that to Disney. We have established this idea of the mar marriage and even sexuality within marriage. We've made that into this idol, which really, really is messed up for these folks, which is us folks. We have 50% of us that aren't married, and so we, we, we as, a, as a community, is it true that these people are missing out? Is it true that they have less worth or less identity or they're incomplete in some way, shape, or form because they're not married? If you believe that, you have to believe that in absence of the Bible because the Bible has a real notable person who never got married, and he was totally complete. You might want to write his name down. Jesus. Jesus was totally complete and yet single. He was in that category over there on the, on the right side. And you never heard Jesus say, you know, this, I, I'm gonna, I come to give you life and I'll have it to the full. But i got to be honest, I'm not completely fulfilled because I just haven't found the right lady. You don't have one Bible verse saying that. Jesus is totally fulfilled. And not only Jesus, another, some have made the case that the person that has impacted Western civilization more, even than Jesus, is Paul. Another single dude. Now, this is not 2020. This is first century. And first century Judaism. 
And first, I mean, if, you, if you're a single person, you're just tired of your parents, just like, so have you found someone? Have you found someone yet? And they like just lay that on thick. You have no idea what Paul had to go through. In the first century, you are not a full man until you're married. You think your Thanksgiving is complicated? You should have gone to his. I mean, it was awful. This was something that, and yet Paul was the guy who in 1 Corinthians 7 said, I don't understand, this is paraphrase here, because I don't understand this notion that all you breeders have, that it's all about marriage. I wish all of you were like me. I wish all of you had the perspective that I had that singleness was not this like curse, but it was actually a, an avenue of, of fulfillment and purpose and everything. And if you're going to get married, you've got a whole set of responsibilities you've got to go into. I don't have to worry about any of those. Paul was someone who advocated for the idea that our fulfillment doesn't come in marriage or sex or singleness. It comes from Jesus. That all of us are in this oval of fulfillment if we find our truest identity in him. That there's a pathway towards romantic sexuality. And that's in the confines of marriage between a husband and wife. And yet, that is in no way, shape, or form the end of the story for one who's fulfilled. That's the purpose. We have a problem. The problem is, is that from the get-go, from our Genesis account, we have the fact that this got marred. This whole idea, and not just this, everything. Everything in creation, the doctrine of original sin, so that everything in creation from, from that sin entrance into reality on had not only an expiration date, but it had a break in its design already. Every single one of us physiologically are born broken. We have some type of break. We have an expiration date on this body. We are born with different maladies, things that we wish we didn't have but are there. Things that make life a struggle. You may not be as athletic as you could possibly be because you were born with this type of physiology versus another. All those things. These are realities that we are born with. But not just our physiological differences, but also our psychological difference. We are born broken psychologically, which means that every aspect of our thinking is marred by the brokenness of sin. Which is why Lady Gaga is right. You heard it here first. This is a true statement i remember when she when the song first came out it was like i mean it's advocating for look we need to be totally okay with whatever one's sexuality is because we it's very natural and honestly when i've talked with within our church people are like look errol this is going to shock you but i'm gay and when they've talked with me and when i've had conversations in my office what they've explained to me is this here's the thing you think that this is a choice probably but i never chose this I wouldn't have chosen this. Do you want to know how hard it was for me to tell my parents this? Do you want to know the anxiety of realizing this all throughout my, from my earliest memory of attraction? It never was for the opposite sex. It always was for, for, for the same sex. And all throughout my life, it was just consistently, and I, and I prayed, I prayed to God that he would take it away, and he never, ever did. I was born with this. This is as natural to me as the colors of my eyes, the color of my eyes. To which I would say, theologically speaking, you could not be more accurate. The doctrine of original sin says that universally, you and me are all born with deviations, breaks in what God originally designed us for that are seemingly as natural to us as our eyes. And I follow up that with this, saying, listen, you've just told me this major confession about the fact that, that you, from your very earliest memory on, had this deviation, seemingly deviation from God's plan. But I have to tell you that from my very earliest memory, I 
have also had a deviation. From before I could remember, as long as I could remember any type of attraction, I have been attracted to women who were not my wife. Like from eight years old on, I wasn't married at eight. From eight years old on, I was attracted sexually to women that I was not married to. When I got to junior high, all of a sudden it just like ramped up. And all of a sudden it was like this nonstop. I remember someone t- telling me that your sex drive in junior, as a guy in junior high and high school is just so high that you're thinking about sex every seven seconds. And I'm like, seven seconds? Try three and a half. It's all the time. And it's just like, and, I, and, I, and as a Christian, I remember praying, God, why is it that I'm lusting? Jesus said it himself. If you look at another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart against her. And I'm like, I am doing it all day long. And I was just thinking, well, how is it that I can, and so if God is good and he's, he's powerful, he is going to rid me of this, this massive, this albatross that I'm tacking, you know, just pulling behind me of attraction for someone I'm not married to. If marriage is the only pathway for sexuality, my psyche is connected nonstop with the opposite, a deviation, and I didn't choose it. I was born this way. From my very earliest memory, it was as natural to me as the color of my eyes. And yet, Jesus calls you and me to deal with this problem through him. The fact that that we are naturally inclined towards things that he's not for is not a shocker. But it is all-encompassing. It's all around us. Which brings us to uh, Childish Gambino's This is America. Uh, Donald Glover did an amazing job in the music video portraying a reality that he was communicating about black America. And and, and through it, he's just smiling and singing through all the different um, stereotypical realities and violent realities that you have within African-American culture. And he's just participating all the way through until he gets to the very end of the video and, and instead of dancing and singing and just like portraying all of these genres and things that, that have been imposed upon African Americans by African Americans and others, the end of the video is him, the music shifting and him just sprinting, running away. And he's no longer smiling, he's no longer singing, he is sprinting with all of his might, running away from the very reality that he portrayed. And the purpose of this is to empower Young individuals, young African-American individuals specifically to say you are born into a culture within America that is detrimental. It is all around you and you could totally be absorbed in it or you could do what I'm doing and wake up and run. And that is the pathway forward for us. See, for us, just like Donald Glover portrayed in that video is, is the runaway concept. That there's certain things that you should sit and process, but there's other things that are so, like honestly, if I just sit and think about this, I'm gonna justify anything that I want. If you're dating someone and you're like, okay, I honestly, maybe I agree with the sexual ethic that the only pathway to romantic sexuality is through marriage, but we're not quite there yet. If I think about it and we just process it a little bit, you might find yourself just justifying whatever you want to do. And so Paul, again, the apostle, writing to the sin-soaked city of Corinth, says, listen, you start off with the the standpoint of I've got all the rights in the world to do whatever I want. In chapter 6, that's what he's saying. He says, you, you know, you say that I've got all these rights to do whatever I want. I've, I've got desires and hungers, and these desires and hungers got to be met. And he says, but you're not your own. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're not your own. And so our response is to run away from sexual immorality. Like all other sins, a person commits, they're outside of his body. But, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 
In other words, that, that when we actually are engaging in sexual sin, whether it's all alone or it's with someone else, we're actually stepping into self-harm. We're actually actively choosing to self-harm and justifying because it just seems so normative and natural. And so the pathway forward for this is basically saying, as a single person, I am an individual, if I'm a Christian, that I'm going to live with purpose and purity. I'm going to protect my mind. I've got temptations and desires. If I'm not yet married, I've got temptations and desires towards sex, possibly, unless, unless you're asexual, because that's, that's also a reality. If you're not asexual, you have temptations and drives that are driving you away from God's path towards sexuality. And so what you do is the thoughts and desires you don't need, you don't feed. The thoughts you don't need, you don't feed. If I've got a thought that, like, I, I'm thinking about this person or I'm, I'm engaging in pornography, you feed that, and it's going to get strong, be a stronger component of your life. If you starve it, it becomes more diminished. Does it go away forever? Uh-uh, no way. But you feed what you need. You starve what you don't need. And the reality is, is that oftentimes in that right side, we just feel so lost. Like, it just seems so difficult to maintain the pathway of sexuality to be only in marriage between a husband and wife. That seems so limiting and prudish, and it is. It just happens to be the most true, life-giving sexual ethic we have. That, that is, in actuality, fully true. Now, people who are single, some of them stay single forever. And again, they're in the fulfilled circle of what God has. And we should probably encourage more of our people at Mission Bible Church to think about singleness not as a, well, if you don't find the right person, then I guess you could be single, but actually as a cause, like this reality of like, I, my life can be incredibly full as a single person. However, if you do meet someone and you start down the pathway towards marriage, that you, you start protecting that. And then when you, when you get into marriage, Paul says one of the reasons he's so stoked about being single is he doesn't have to take the responsibilities of married life. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says that the responsibilities for a marriage, married person is to actually sexually fulfill their spouse by laying down their life for that person. He says, husbands, your body is not your own. And that was one of the most counter-cultural messages for the first century. Your body, rather than looking at your wife objectively as a means to an end, your body is not your own. You lay down your life for her. You, you're aiming to bring her sexual pleasure. And, and then he says, wives, conversely, that's for you as well. And so Paul's like, I don't want that I don't need that. <laughs> I don't need that kind of responsibility. That's for someone who wants to pursue that. That's the sexual, I think it's within, within marriage. Now, here's the thing. Um, one of the things of just recognizing that this, what this does is this is coaching our brain. And, and when we're coaching our brain, we're actually coaching our brain to say, I'm going to naturally think about things and fantasize about things that are off. And so what I need to do is I need to actually coach God's reality more. Um, I, I struggle with anxiety attacks every once in a while, panic attacks. And one of the things that, that is the reality within that is this. Um, the more I feed those thoughts in my head, the stronger they get. Like thoughts of like, I'm out of control. This is, this is all breaking apart. I'm freaking out. If you've, if you've ever had a panic attack, you know what I'm talking about. But, th but those thoughts are there. Now, thoughts that are telling me that I'm nothing and I'm worthless or whatever, are those from God? No, those are lies. But I can embrace those thoughts. And I could condition my brain and coach my brain with them over and over and over again until that is my whole reality. Or I could suppress those thoughts. Is it suppression? Yeah, it's suppression. I'm suppressing lies. I'm not going to believe it. And so by starving those thoughts, I'm setting myself up to think the truer thoughts, the more realistic thoughts about my life. Same thing is within this. And also, one of the things, like, um, when I've had a chance to talk with um, friends that are trans, that's something that, that they've equally said, I, I just don't get how to make this work with my Christianity. Because again, 
from my earliest memory, from my earliest memory, I was born into this body. And my parents, they gave me a name that corresponded with my body, but my brain never synced up. And Harold, you have no idea how difficult it is to live like this isn't. That my body and my brain are out of connection, they're out of sync. And the science doesn't really fully express why that is. Some scientific work has, has undergone the reality that possibly in, in development in the womb, that, that a, a child that is developing as a female may have testosterone wash over her brain and give her actual uh, a perspective that is more masculine leaning. And so that's not like, you're not making this up in your head. This is something that physiologically you were born with. And so what does a person who's born into this type of a disconnect, the, the correct term is gender dysphoria, this type of dysphoric disconnect, what are they supposed to do? I mean, because before they even shared that with anyone they cared about, they had to walk with this disconnect and go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Now, I don't know what the world's supposed to do, but I, I, as a Christian, and this is something that's, that's tough to process, but what I was, when I was talking with this friend, I, I said, here's the deal. I think that in our world, we have two different pictures. We have a picture of religious groups that oftentimes are saying, Deny, deny, deny. You have, you're, you're a female body. You have ma masculine thoughts. Deny, deny, deny. Just get a little bit more feminine. Start thinking girlish thoughts, and you're going to get healed. Deny, deny, deny. The other side of the spectrum is the world. The world is like affirm, affirm, affirm. You, 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 whatever you want to be is what you should be. Whatever you're thinking, just go with that and make, make whatever, whatever means necessary to pull that off, do that. Like, make, make it possible so that you can actually transition, whether it's hormones or it's, or, or it's sur surgical. Just do that. And as I was talking with her, I said, what if, there's, what if there's a different path than either one of these? Because I see the gospel speaking a little bit more clearly that doesn't land in either one of these different exclusive camps. Um, I asked her, I said, you know, is it possible, like, in, in the trans community to, to go from recognizing my brain and my body are disconnected to actually get there, like, with enough hormones or with enough surgeries, do you get to that place where these two things just feel synced up, that, that your brain and your body are finally synced? And she said, no. And that's why there's so many suicides within the trans community. Some of it's bullying, for sure. But a majority of the suicides in the trans community come from the fact that I have accepted the fact that my body and my brain are different, and I've tried to make my brain or my I've tried to make my body sync up to my brain through hormone processes and um, surgery, and, it, and it's chasing the cisgender approach. That when cisgender is like when when someone sees me, they see me as the gender that is in my brain. Like, if, if, I, if I'm vamping uh, masculine, when they see me, they see a man, not a female, even though I was born a female, per se. And she said, the thing that, that's, that's hard is that every time you walk in a room, no matter how much surgery you've had or how many hormones you've taken, you're looking and you're scanning people's eyes and you're waiting for them to go. And inevitably, it, that happens. She said, talk about absolute depression absolute discouragement, but I did everything I could to bring these two together, and I'm still not seeing the way I think. And so what the gospel, I believe, speaks into this, and this is just how I've been processing this, 
is what if you could actually, as a Christian who believes that God's created us and he's the artist, what if we said, I can embrace the skin that I've been painted into. If, 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 you're, if you were born biologically female, that he painted you into a feminine, uh, a female's body. If you're, ma- if, you're, if you're a man, he's painted you into a man's body by his choice. And the reality is that, that, that the, but because of the fall, everything is broken to some degree. And so you would recognize that there's a psychological disconnect. But what if you were someone that said, if you asked me my gender, I could be honest with you and say, I am a female or I am a male. That's what I was, I was born as that. But as a Christian who embraces the gospel of the fact that sin has come into the world, you could be honest. I'd say, but I'm going to be honest with you. Even though I'm a female as my gender, I have never, ever had a feminine perspective thought, everything is skewed masculine. And what if you were a part of a church that could actually embrace that, embrace both of those realities as a reality of the world that we live in, the reality of, of the fall, and that we would walk alongside you, walking through the messiness of the fact that I am thinking masculine and I'm in a feminine body. That we could call you a female, but we could know what's going on in your brain because we love you and we're going to walk alongside you. That, that's a part of like coaching, coaching our, rea- our brain and our, our, our reality and that, that's, again, if maybe you're straight or maybe if you're trans, but what if, what if you're, you're, uh, you're gay or you're lesbian or you're bi? Like, you, you've had same-sex attraction. Um, my friend Christopher Yuan has talked about the fact that, um, you know, coming, he, he came out as gay, and then uh, throughout his life, he ultimately, this is before he was a Christian, then all of a sudden he becomes a Christian, and he's, he's really torn because he, he, he feels completely natural and normative as same-sex attracted, and yet he's trying to follow scripture and follow what God says for him. And he ultimately gets to a place where he's like, I'm so frustrated with churches that like, it feels like every time I go in a church, it's like, and it's usually old ladies. Old ladies are coming up to me and they're trying to like, I know that you don't have any attraction for women, but my daughter, <laughs> she could fix you. He's like, for real? And he's like, he's like and, and for, for Christopher, he, that, that, again, there is no, no sexual impulse towards a female. Nor, nor is there necessary for him to have any sexual impulse towards a female. Why? Because the only avenue for sexuality, romantic sexuality, is in marriage. And that's not for everyone. And so he's like, okay, so I don't need that. But he says, the thing that breaks my heart is that Christians have so gotten off the idea of what, what, is, what is true and what is not that we end up, he says, there was a time that I was in a church and this, this mother came, comes up to me and she's just bawling her eyes out. And he, I could tell she was distraught. She couldn't even get the words out. And eventually she said, I just, I got to tell you about my son. And, and he's like, it's okay, it's okay. I'm going to be here as long as you need. And she said, my son, I just wish, I just wish he was normal. I just wish he was normal like, like my other son. He and his girlfriend have a baby, a beautiful baby. I just wish he could be normal like them. And Christopher's heart sank. Because the sexual ethic that she's operating off of is this. Homosexual sin, that's something God really has an issue with. But straight sin, he's totally cool with that. Like if you deviate from the pathway of sexuality only finding itself in a husband and wife relationship, if you really believe that, then you would look at both of these as like, no, we both have ways that we've deviated from God's plan for us, and we need to repent and get right with him. And he, and, we, and he gives us a second chance over and over again. And yet, the church has really, really communicated the people who really have the sexual issue 
are those in the LGBT community, not us heterosexuals, because at least we're, if we're going to sin, at least we're sinning straight. That's straight up messed up. And it's false. And, and as Christians, we have propitiated, we, we, we made that, not, we've allowed that to happen. And so if you're someone with same-sex attraction and you felt like there's no way I could possibly share this struggle, yeah, the, the 10th grader next to me, he can share his struggle that he lusts all the time. And, and people are like, oh, I understand, but I could never share what I'm going through. You need to realize that this church is aiming to be a biblical church where you can actually say, yeah, that's, this is my story. I also need to struggle well. And so when we come back to this whole concept, we're looking at the fact that, that outside of this, there's, there's right around 5% of individuals that would identify as LGBT um, within the population as a whole. And so for you, if your question is, what is, what is my calling on my life? I would say your calling is to struggle well alongside us. We look at fulfillment as people, some people who are married, some people who are single and not romantically pursuing anything off God's grid. And so for you, we want you to be someone who's honest and struggling well alongside us. And because the truth of the matter is, is that if you have same-sex attraction, that attraction in of itself is not sin. It's temptation, just like heterosexuals have. In fact, I would put it this way. Same-sex attraction doesn't make a person evil any more than heterosexual attraction makes a person holy. If you have, same, if you have different sex attraction, that doesn't make you righteous. It's what you do with that that will either make your choices righteous or not. If you have same-sex attraction, you didn't choose that. It's just always been there. That doesn't make you sinful. What you do with those temptations and thoughts actually is where we see a defining reality. Jackie Hill Perry put it this way. God was not calling me to be straight. He was calling me to, be, to himself. The choice to lay down aside sin and take hold of holiness was not synonymous with heterosexuality. In my becoming holy as he is, I would not be miraculously made into a woman that didn't like women. I'd be made into a woman that loved God more than anything. And so what Jackie here was discovering was, and discussing was this. Once I surrendered my life to Jesus, I actually realized that his number one perspective was not to get me straight. His number one perspective was to get me with him. Jesus did not come to earth and die on the cross so that gay people would become straight people. He came to earth to die on the cross so that lost people would become found. That dead people would become alive. And what God does when we actually have surrendered lives is amazing. Whether you have same-sex attraction or not, it's amazing what God does. And again, the truth of the matter is, is that for her, when she did that, the weird thing started up where she started actually developing, like, attraction for a, a guy that was in her church. And they got married and they have kids. And so, like, that's, that's the end of the story, right? This is the happy ever after. No. They have to struggle as a married couple, just like every other married couple. Christopher Yuan, however, he prayed and prayed and prayed that God would take away his same-sex attraction. Has God done that? No. And he's single today. And he's more fulfilled than most of us married people in this room. You know why? Because he's passionate about, about making his identity in Jesus, first and foremost. And most of us, even those of us who are married, do not. That's the truth. Now, where the grace comes in is with Jesus. And this is amazing. This is where we get to that passage that's recorded in John chapter 8. Verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts. Where is Jesus? Thank you. Awesome. He's in the temple courts. Woo! All right. He's in the temple courts. Fairly holy place, yes? Yes. Very holy place. It's a good place where religious stuff happens. He's again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat there to teach them. What is Jesus doing? He's teaching. It's like, okay, everyone gathering here. I'm gonna, this is, and whenever Jesus teaches, it's not just didactic. Okay, I'm going to give you the Pythagorean theorem. It's not just teaching. It's like, 
I'm going to teach you something, and everyone around you knows something's going to happen. Something's going to happen because Jesus is always doing these things where crazy things happen, and he ends up, that becomes the teaching. And so he's, he's down there, sitting down there to teach him. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Okay, pause. Is adultery sin? Does Jesus know that? Okay, probably, yes. I'm guessing yes. 100% yes. Verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So in first century Judaism, adultery is a capital offense. And to stone them was not to get them high. It was to take boulders and to crush this person. Usually there was like some type of recessed area. Sometimes you would, most of the time you would do this outside of like town or along the road. And you would get the person, you would throw them down there. And then you would throw a rock and throw a rock and throw a rock until this person, they're bludgeoned to death. It's terrible. And so they're like, Jesus, she did the crime. We're ready to give her the sentence. What do you say about that? In verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And this is when Jesus starts to give us the pattern forward. In 2020, Jesus gives us the pattern forward on how we're supposed to interact with sexual sin, our own and those of those within the church. How are we supposed to deal with sexual sin, being someone who's emulating Jesus, full of truth and full of grace? First off, make it personal. Make it personal. We're not dealing with an issue, we're dealing with a person. This is what Jesus did. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. I'll wait. Jesus is like, okay, so you, 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 you're right. The law of Moses says that she deserves death. So here's the deal. I'm going to let the person who hasn't done any sin be the first dude to throw a rock. Okay, Ed, is that you? Charlie? Who's going to, uh, here, uh, you know what? I'm just going to go down here and draw on the sand. You guys go ahead and talk amongst yourself, and I'll get up when she's dead. And he keeps on, he doesn't do that. What he does is he actually, he asks them, he puts them in a position of personalizing this. Instead of focusing in on her sin, he says, okay, you rock throwers, who of you have, has no sin? You're coming at this with a whole lot of judgment. I know your heart. You're coming at this with a whole lot of judgment. And he, he makes it personal. One of the, um, this past week, um, I had the opportunity to have coffee um, with the, I, and I asked him if I could share this, and he said, totally. His name's Ryan. He's the head of GLAD at JUCO, which is the Gay and Lesbian um, Anti-Alliance uh, of Anti-Defamation. That's GLAD. G-L-A-A-A-D. And um, I met with Ryan, and I, and I said, Ryan, I'm just going to be totally straight up with you and totally honest with you. I'm a pastor. I'm working on a message. I want to help my church um, not only see what truth is, but to see how we have truth with grace. And this is an issue where the church has stumbled and fallen, and we've been awfully, awfully um, toxic to the culture around us. And he said, you're right. And he says, and not only that, the two types of Christians that I know of are these. The Christians that are in a church that says they're totally open and affirming. And he says, I like these Christians, because they say it. My, my, my sexual drive is not a problem. He says, but I know a lot of Christians that are a lot more like the Westboro Baptist folks who are so hateful and so hate-filled that I can't even, because there's still kids in here that are relatively young, I'm not even going to say what their placards say when they're protesting because they're so atrocious. He says, these are the two views I have. And I said, Ryan, wouldn't it be amazing if there was another way? Like a way that actually Christians, because you and I, we're landing on different conclusions with regard to sexuality. 
I look at a biblical ethic actually saying that the only avenue for romantic sexuality is not with two heterosexual people that aren't married or two homosexual people that aren't married or a homosexual couple that's married. I, the only avenue is found in marriage between a husband and a wife. And so we, we're going to disagree on that. But wouldn't it be amazing that in spite of the fact that we disagree that we could actually like love each other and, and actually care about each other? And he says, I could, I could talk about that all day long. Here's the thing with Ryan. Ryan took me to website after website after website that Christians have made. And the first thing he pointed out was how crappy the design was. I'm like, I agree, that's just messed. It's 1997, what is this? But on top of that, not only poor design, but the hateful stuff that was on there by these Christian groups that are quoting verses and everything else. And he said, this is the thing that frustrates me more than anything. And he points to this one uh, link on it, the gay agenda. He's like, Errol, I'm so tired of hearing Christians talk about the gay agenda. I'm gay. I have no agenda. I just want to be, I just want to be a person that's respected and cared about and loved. And I said, okay, that's true. <laughs> Every Christian group that I've been a part, we're, that's what we're afraid of, the gay agenda. I, I get it. Listen, if you're someone, are there laws out there that, that are going to make it more and more difficult for churches to say what I'm saying right here? Yes. People that are po po politically connected and within policy, should they be a part of making sure that that doesn't hurt churches? Totally. But that's not majority of us. Majority of us aren't politically connected. We, we're dealing with people. And on an individual basis, you're not dealing with a ish, like this massive movement. You're dealing with Ryan. I invited Ryan to come here and be my guest of honor this weekend. And he was like, oh, I could do that. But then he realized he has, he has a conference um, for um, online LGBT, or not online, but on-campus LGBT groups that he's going to be at. But he said, is it okay if I come next week? I said, totally. So I'm not going to call him up on stage because that would be weird. But Ryan is going to be here. And wouldn't it be amazing for a church to actually make it personal by not looking at this gay agenda, but look at the individual that Jesus loves? Because that, that's the woman caught in adultery, right? Be an odd ally. Today, oftentimes, we, we make synonymous someone who's an advocate or an ally with, I agree with what you're doing. Like, I can't be an ally of you unless I agree with what you're doing. And yet, for this woman, there's two groups of people in this setting, the religious people and Jesus. Who is the ally for this woman caught in sexual sin? Who is the advocate? Who? Jesus. Look what happens. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. What's Jesus doing? He's drawing in the sand, and all of a sudden rocks are dropping. He knows what's happening, but rocks are dropping, and all of a sudden Jesus straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus basically stands up like, oh, you're still alive. You are not crushed to death. How did that happen? Who has condemned you? No one, sir. But neither do I condemn you. Does Jesus have a perspective that adultery is sin? Totally does. And yet, for the person caught in sin, who is her greatest ally? Jesus. What if Christians were an odd advocate like that, an odd ally? What if it could be true that the best allies are those who love you so much that they will protect you even when they don't agree with you? Because if, if, only, if your allies are only people who agree 100% with what you're doing, what happens when they don't agree with you one day? But what if you had a bunch of Christians who didn't agree with you, and yet you could tell that they loved you even more than some of the people who agree with you some of the time or most of the time? Certainly more than maybe their parents when you told them and you came out of the closet. Like, what, what, if, what if Christians, what if people said, like, like, I told Ryan, Ryan, wouldn't it be amazing if people that came out of my church, like, w within the LGBT community in this area, they knew, like, oh, man, Mission Bible Church, they've got the most prudish perspective on sexual ethic. Like, it's very narrow. Uber narrow. 
And yet they're the most loving people on planet Earth, and it's not fake, and I could tell it. They really, like, they care about us. They care about me. You want something to fantasize about? Fantasize about that. That's amazing. Because that would be exactly what we see Jesus doing right here, an odd ally. But we need to also be clear. Because like Brene Brown said, clear is caring. If you're, if you're ambiguous about like, hey man, I love you, I love you, I love you. Well, what, what are, you're a Christian. What do you think about like, like what I'm doing? Is this like, do you think this is sin? If you're ambiguous, that's not caring. If you know what scripture is saying, and you're kind of like, well, I don't, I'm kind of not sure what I think about. You're not being clear. And that's ambiguous. And that's, that's honestly not caring for that person in the least. Have the guts to be able to disagree with someone and love them in spite of that disagreement. They may have not seen many people like that. We haven't either. But we see that whenever we see Jesus. Jesus says, he doesn't turn to her and say it's all good. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm going to get rid of all the haters and all the judges, get them out of the scene. And you know what? Honestly, the whole like adultery thing, not even my idea is that being a big deal. Honestly, I'm totally okay with it. Just go ahead and if you really love the guy, just pursue that. He doesn't say that. He's our greatest advocate. And then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. And you know what that did for her? That gave her an on-ramp so wide that she heard that she was accepted by a rabbi, a religious teacher. We need to do the same, to build a wide on-ramp for those who to struggle well al alongside you, that as a church, we could have such a sexual ethic that is so prudish by majority of the world out there. Because, I mean, we're even talking about heterosexuals that are in sin if they're not pursuing romantic sexuality only in the confines of marriage. That's very narrow. We know that. In this room, we know that. But what if we had an on-ramp where someone could say, I am struggling with same-sex attraction. I don't know what to do with it. And they could be in partnership with someone else that is also saying, I also struggle with my sex drives that take me away from God's design to only pursue romantic sexuality in the confines of marriage. And together we could struggle well. Like, what if this church looked like that? What if this was a safe place for that? What if this was the type of church where someone who's single didn't feel like they were incomplete or missing out but like Jesus and Paul, they could walk and say, I am living out the most fulfilled life possible because it's a life surrendered to Jesus. This could be us. If we have the guts to step into the complicated world that Jesus gave for us, the model on how to do that. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that it is you who restores us. It's you who um, allows us through the Holy Spirit to feel conviction, to recognize God when we're off. And honestly, Lord, a lot of us, um, we've gotten really numb to the Holy Spirit's convictions because it's so normative, so normal, it's so acceptable, God, regardless of where we land on the sexual spectrum. Lord, I pray that for the Christians in this room, we will trust you with not only our salvation, but our lives itself, our choices. And the way that we interact, God, not only owning the truth of how you view sexual, sexuality, but owning the grace that you display with those who break with that, that that'll be something that we're equally known for. Lord, I pray that each step of the way that we have difficult times emulating your amazing design for us, both individually and interpersonally, God, I pray that you give us strength and the ability to pull that off, to make that happen. And the world around us will see it and see a difference from the extremes that they've seen everywhere else. And when that happens, we'll give you the thanks and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week.